Listening to Open Up the Wall, Revelations of a Renovation Contractor. Now, this is what they call a quote, inspirational memoir. It's about my career change from award winning actor to the owner of my own construction company. It's definitely a memoir, and throughout the 14 episodes of this podcast, you're going to meet some wonderful characters on both sides of the tool belt. This podcast is an edited version of the 27 chapter book of the same title. And it's available in e-form or hard copy. You can find out more about the book and about me, the author, Jeff Bowes, on my website, www.openupthewall.com. Feel free to leave any questions or comments you may have. I'd love to hear from you. Well, after the addition of death back in Episode 7, I never thought Stan or I would do another second story edition, let alone do it together, but we did. And despite some uncooperative weather, it was a great experience. After being on my own for a few years, it was a relief to be part of a crew again with no responsibility for running the show. But I was now fully aware of how stressful the addition of death must have been for poor Stan, and I was determined to pick up as much slack as I could for him on this job. We worked well together, and we had a lot of laughs, but when the job was finished, we went our separate ways... And I didn't hear from him for a couple of years. Here's episode 11, The Addition of Discovery. I was pretty sure I could handle this. I'd done additions before, but never as the sole bearer of responsibility for everything that could go wrong. For all the various trucks pulling up on the sidewalk of the residential street, for the moving of bricks and lumber by crane into the backyard, for having to hire a cop by the day to stand around and police these goings-on, for the dumpster's street permit and the dumpster security so that neighbors don't fill it up with old coaches when we go for lunch, for the flow of money from client to worker, from general contractor, me, to workers' comp, for the call-before-you-dig application, for safety equipment for everybody on site, for the diplomatic dealings with neighbor complaints of dust and noise, for the diplomatic dealing with the building inspectors and the architect and the building inspectors complaint about the architect's drawings. I felt an anxiety that I hadn't felt since my first studio job so many years ago. Back then, it came from starting every day not knowing what was going to happen next. But now it came from seeing the immediate future and knowing that it was up to me to control everything that was going to happen next, every day, for weeks and weeks. I could feel the sleepless nights ahead, but I was also excited by the challenge. Hey, look at me now, Ma! I am now the boss of a whole bunch of common tradesmen. I had a stellar crew lined up for the inside of the house. Seamus was in for gutting the bathroom and the kitchen. I lined up Chris the plumber for the new bathroom and kitchen, and Jimmy was going to do the tiling and also promised to do any of the picky, detailed stuff that I hated doing. The new guys were Rico the electrician, who crowed regularly about how happy he was to be out of Cuba and in Canada, and Phil, who I hired to help with flooring and cabinetry, but he ended up becoming my right-hand man. He was so organized and competent. Phil had multi-skills from working on his own houses, so when he retired early as a high school vice principal, I snapped him up. 
These were all family men, which meant that they could be counted on not to show up hungover and not spend the day on their phones. They were all well-read and witty, which made for great lunchtime discussions, and they all had good manners. Manners were important, as this house was packed in between two others with a narrow 32-inch walkway on one side as the only separation. Good relations with the neighbors and their children would be critical, given what they were all about to endure for the next couple of months. The clients, Jean and Lydia, had rented an apartment for the duration, so the day their family moved out, Phil and I got started removing an unused chimney that was taking up space inside the two-story house. I straddled the peak of the roof and began pitching bricks into the backyard while Phil piled them against the fence. And then I heard somebody bellowing, What the hell, you? Why are you doing damage to my fence? Oh, great. Day one, I have a neighbor issue. Well, they're rarely serious. It's usually just humans guarding their territory, but diplomacy is paramount. I climbed down to see a big old man leaning over the fence with his large head poking between two downspouts that were running from his house, duct taped to the fence and slathered in a clear, gelatinous goo. I introduced Phil and myself, gave him my card, and I explained the work that we would be doing. Phil and I stood in silence while he studied my card intently. And then when I complimented him on his waterproof downspouts, he looked up proudly. Lots of work. Lots of rubber cement. Lasts forever. Yeah, sure enough, the goo was dry. It was indeed rubber cement. Come, boys, I show you. And he led us on a tour of his yard, showing us posts, stairs, watering cans, and a bicycle seat, all duct-taped and covered in rubber cement. And then he led us to his workshop, where he presented me with two skill saw blades from a pile of about 20 of them. A gift from me. I am Frank. Well, you're very kind, Frank, I said. I'll give you more stuff later. Now, I go lie down, so you don't, you know, make good big noise. Later I come, I see what you're doing over there. The next day was the official day one of the full house reno. The day that all the workspace gets emptied of the client's furniture and personal effects. All that stuff gets wrapped in plastic. And then the tools get carried in and arranged. The table saw in the longest room for ripping the longest lengths of wood. The miter saw to one side. The other side is where all the lumber gets stacked. Hand tools, tool bags, first aid kit, brooms and vacuums get lined up in one room and hardware in the other. New sinks, toilets, bathtubs, boxes of tile, boxes of screws, garbage bags, etc., etc. Day one is usually the first time that the contractor has been in the space since making the deal with the homeowner, which could have been months earlier. I took my notes and I walked through the beautiful old house, refreshing my memory as to all that was going to happen. A lot of the work on this house would involve taking out the 90-year-old trim and baseboards, restoring them to their past glory, and reinstalling them. For all the trades involved, this is a much more satisfying way to work than just throwing up pot lights and a granite countertop and calling it renovated. Jean and Lydia wanted to keep the essence of the place, with its wide baseboards and its ornate door and window trim, plaster moldings, ceiling medallions. These people wanted the history of the house to survive the renovation right down to the porcelain doorknobs. They were spending their money on repairing the stained glass above the doors instead of putting in a heated floor in the bathroom. The banisters were going to be refinished, 
not torn out. When I put my hand on the side of the top post, which is rubbed free of its varnish and lacquer, I could feel all the years of children's hands gripping that post as they swung a leg up and slid down the long banister. All the cuts and splinters that I was going to get on this job, all the showering of mouse droppings in my hair and all the timing of subtrades coming and going, all the building inspections along the way, all these things were easier to bear when you feel some of your heart and soul going into a project. This house was going to be beautiful, not just done. But old houses are unpredictable. Phil and I were standing in the bathroom at the top of the stairs, speculating on how long we could keep the toilet functional before we had to remove it to put in a new floor. And then Frank appeared at the bottom of the stairs with a coil of plastic rope. Here, use this. Uh, what for? I replied. Whatever you want is a gift. Now, what's going on up here? As Frank stomped his way up the stairs, I felt a vibration on the landing, and I quickly went to the toilet to look inside it. Sure enough, there were ripples of water. Ay, spongy floor, I said to Phil. Yeah, I felt it, he said. Some part of this bathroom is not connected to the wall. There goes the toilet, I said. We'll be peeing down the drain for a few weeks now. We had to take the kitchen ceiling down to see why the floor above was bouncing. Sure enough, the two joists on either side of the toilet had been completely cut away to make room for the toilet drain. There was nothing holding up the corner of the bathroom. I made a note of this in the extras column. Over the years, I have refined a speech that I give to clients about their renovation expectations before I start the work. It's very important that people who have never renovated before know what they're getting into, and I don't spare them any of the ugly details about how dirty and disruptive the process can be. I paint an equally scary picture of the surprises that can lurk behind the walls and under the floors of older homes, adding time and money to the bottom line. So, when I emailed pictures of the damage to Jean and Lydia, and a price for the repair, they were not taken completely by surprise, and the tenuous trust between client and contractor survived its first hurdle. Just to be on the safe side, I called the building inspector assigned to this project. Because I had to remedy a structural issue, and because I had never met the inspector for this area before, I was leaving nothing to chance. I wanted to establish that I was a by-the-book, kiss-ass contractor of his dreams. Building inspectors are fair, but demanding people, so I still get a childish sense of dread when I hear their firm, authoritative knock on the door. They're like that strict teacher in grade five that you prayed you wouldn't get because you could never be sure of where you stood with them. Because back in grade five, you didn't understand power yet. This stuff stays with you. I booked an on-site inspection for two days later, and then Phil and I got to work adding new two-inch by ten-inch joists across the width of the kitchen ceiling. We had to cut out the old toilet drain to make room for the new lumber. Two days later, I saw a man in the official hard hat of the building inspector coming up the walkway, so I went out to greet him. When he extended his hand, I did the same, assuming it was a handshake. I didn't notice that he was offering a business card, and so I continued in handshake mode, bending his fingers back on contact. He winced. Ow! Jesus, what the hell? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I, I thought we were shaking hands. God, you really got me.
damn, that hurt. You the contractor here? Uh, yes. I'm Nick. Show me what's going on. We went to the kitchen and I showed him the new joists. He climbed up on my scaffold and checked that every joist was well secured on the wall plates. He checked the hardware that we had used, measured the distance between the blocking pieces and said, Good. Let's see upstairs. I followed him up the stairs and into the bathroom. He looked down at the torn out floor. And then he looked into my eyes and he said, I don't see the toilet drain. Um, we had to cut it out to make room for the new joists. Where's your plumbing permit? Oh, shit. I mean, I mean, uh, no, I, uh, I didn't think to get a plumbing permit. I, I don't have one. I will, I will get one. I will, uh, forthwith, I, I only kept blabbering because he kept on staring at me. And finally he said, okay, just get one. And don't try to sneak anything by me or I'll come down hard on you. No, no, I would never do that, I said. This was an oversight, and I can assure you. I know, he said. It looks like you care. I was so relieved and grateful for such validation that I blathered on. Well, uh, yes, I, I do care, and I can assure you that I will never. It's okay. Jesus, lighten up. I'll see you the next time for your addition foundation inspection. He extended his hand, and when I went to shake it, he quickly withdrew it in mock fear. I laughed way too loud, relieved that he hadn't made me stop work until I got a plumbing permit, and delighted that this forced relationship was still working. I made sure that everybody knew what they had to do, and I went to City Hall to stand in line for a plumbing permit. I didn't bother saying anything like, this had better be done when I get back, to any of them. I finally had a crew that I trusted completely. Hard-working, level-headed guys with a strong sense of humor, a common dislike of potlights, and not one tattoo amongst us. They were much older than the kids I usually hired, so their sense of responsibility was well-developed, and their experience made them not afraid to take initiative. Is everybody happy in their work? I would ask. You won't leave me, will you? I'll do anything to keep us together, except pay you more. We worked the old house over for the first two weeks. She groaned and she creaked as we jacked up her staircase and squared her doorways. We tore down her lath and plaster ceilings and heard the air rushing in from all the cracks in her brick walls. We expelled the vermin that were living between the floors. It was heavy, noisy work. And we worked in silence because we were wearing respirators and the dust was too thick to see across the room. And then the dust cleared and we got busy putting her back together again, talking and laughing a lot. We discussed the impact of climate change and how to defeat ISIS, but we always found something to laugh about. Cruise ships, men's fashions, Starbucks, anything. We patched the old hardwood floors, stripped the old baseboards, replaced the stair treads, tiled the bathroom and made new closets. Things were on time, on budget, and every week we had something sexy to show our clients. Except when Phil and I put in the Ikea kitchen. Cabinets and cupboards were to go on all four kitchen walls and there was an island in the middle to go in too. So when the boxes of unassembled cabinets and cupboards and doors and drawers and handles arrived, they took up so much room that the only space we had to assemble them was on the front porch in sub-zero temperature. When we finally had the upper cabinets assembled and our fingers thawed out, we discovered that the kitchen walls had such a bow in them, we'd have to cut out great chunks of wall in order to make the cabinets hang straight. 
It took six days to do one kitchen. I saw the look on Jean and Lydia's face for the first time, and I had to fight the feeling of a Jeffrey for the first time in a very long time. We were about 12 days behind schedule, and I was a bundle of nerves, fretting more and sleeping less, but working longer days without paying attention to the voice in my head warning me not to rush things. Keep it together, I told myself. You haven't fucked up anything. You're just really late. Please don't get insecure and fuck up. Jeffrey, please don't. Well, finally, Phil and I had the kitchen screwed in place. There was just one quick thing left to do. I had to move the water pipe two feet to the left. No big deal. Just hurry up. Cut the pipe, heat the pipe, remove the flame, and solder. Done it a million times. But this time, I smelled smoke. And sure enough, for the second time in my career, I lit the cupboard door on fire. God, I headed off to Ikea for another door while everyone else got their tools out of the house and did the final cleanup. This was the last day for these guys for maybe a month because I would not need them until the footing was poured, the concrete block foundation was in, and the new addition was framed. Then they'd all come back to put in the doors and the floors and the windows, insulate drywall, install the finish, trim, lights, sinks, and taps. I could only hope that they would all still be available when I needed them. Their collective good humor and their supportive attitude was just as important to me as their skills. While springtime softened the ground, I made sure I knew everything there was to know about digging a foundation. Soon, some excavating contractors were going to come by and give me a price. This was uncharted territory for me, and I couldn't afford to be caught off guard. I was in the backyard measuring and remeasuring the addition dimensions when I heard... No fucking way! Two fat men came lumbering between the houses towards me. They were the first of the excavators. These two looked like clowns. Big bellies, big jowls, and high, bald foreheads. I had a sinking feeling. One of them spoke to me in a high-pitched voice. How do you expect me to get a backhoe down here? I mean, there's no fucking room, you know what I mean? He held out a business card. The address had been crossed out, and so had the office phone number. All that remained was a company name and a cell number. Are you saying we have a problem with access to back here? I asked politely. Well, figure it out, buddy. There's no fucking room. Well, there's plenty of room, I said. There's a laneway. There's a back entrance. No way we can get through there with a backhoe. And then where are we going to dump the dirt? Man, oh, this is fucked up. Oh, okay, well, what if the dirt went to the side? Then there would be room. Yeah, 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 what if, what if, what if we just take off right now? This whole thing is way too fucked up. And they turned and they walked away. I stood there, stunned. And then Fatso number one whirled around to face me, angrily twirling himself off balance. What a fucking waste of my time, he shouted at me. You don't know nothing about foundations. Something in me gave way. No, I don't. So what? So what if I don't know anything about foundations? That's why I called you. You're supposed to be the experts, but you turn out to be a pair of whining douchebags. You know, you can pretty much say anything you want to an obese person because, of course, you can always outrun them. Yeah, we're gone, said Fatso too. You can kiss my ass. Perish the thought, I said. What? said Fatso. Are you dissing me? Are you dissing me personally? 
Well, what the fuck do you want me to say, I fume? Thanks for coming to my site and treating me like shit. Now get the fuck out of here before I find something to hit you with. You're fucking retarded, said Fatso One. Come on, Donnie. And they waddled back from whence they came. I never used to talk to people like that. I never had that kind of permission in my previous professional environment. Oh man, what a liberating feeling it is to freely vent my frustration with such abandon. Get it out and get it over with. Flight attendants don't get to do that. Or teachers. Or judges. Nonetheless, Fatso's words were ringing in my ears. You don't know the first thing about foundations. Standing in the yard, imagining the addition in place, I let the scope of this project loom ugly in my mind. I imagined the foundation giving way and the addition collapsing into the house and the whole place having to be demolished, all because of some random error in the foundation work that I was too ignorant to catch. I like to think that all my doomsday scenarios have kept me cautious. I didn't mind overbuilding structural elements or replacing older material just to be on the safe side. It was worth it to me to avoid restless nights with images of disaster wrecking my sleep. For my own peace of mind, I had to finish a project secure in the knowledge that nobody was ever going to call back with a problem. Anyway, working my way down the list of excavation contractors in the Yellow Pages, I was meeting a succession of unqualified backhoe operators, some of whom knew even less about digging a foundation than I did. I got to S and left a message for Silvano Construction. A soft-spoken man returned my call. How can I help you, he said, and I had a good feeling. We agreed to meet on the site the next day. At the appointed time, I met George and his father, who only used his last name, Silvano. Best to dig this by hand, said George. It's too risky to swing a backhoe between the fence and the overhead wires. Is it going to be faster, said Silvano. We're going to take care of it. And then he patted my arm, which pretty much sold me. After we made the deal, their first order of business was to get the building inspector Nick to come by for a, quote, meeting. It turned out they knew him well. Nick came into the backyard, had a look around, and then we all went off to an Italian bakery for espresso. There was a level of politeness that would have suited tea with an empress. Subdued tones, napkins on lap, casual but formal body language. Please pass thee. Would you care for some more? Once George used the word shit and immediately apologized, saying, Excuse my French. The air of regal calm that these gentlemen brought with them inspired confidence. They arrived early the next morning and started digging a trench three feet wide by eight feet deep on three sides of the house. Standing around watching George and his father digging away in the hot sun didn't sit well with me, so over their formal protest, I got a shovel and pitched in. I dug for three fascinating days, hearing stories of their family leaving Italy and coming to America. The details of the Silvano family growing strong together in the face of poverty and bigotry was something that a wasp like me is seldom privy to. I pressed them for more personal stories, and by now, with just their head and shoulders showing over the deepened trench, father and son would call out to me the saga of their family trying to learn English, regretting the move, fearing the future, and all crying together as the rain dripped off the roofing nails into the unfinished attic room where they all lived. 
These sad tales always ended on a positive. Hey, we survived, didn't kill us, made us stronger. Yeah, it wasn't so bad after a while. We finished late in the afternoon of the third day. The father and son paid special attention to barricading the trench before they left. Eh, good, said Silvano. Nobody gonna fall in here and break a leg. He had a point. It was a deep trench. It was made even deeper by the earth that was piled about four feet high on all sides. Now with the picks and shovels gone, it looked more like an art installation than anything to do with construction. It was unfamiliar and with a, a beauty all its own. I slipped under the yellow caution tape and I climbed down the ladder to the bottom. A fist-sized lump of clay rolled from its perch at the top of the pile, bringing more clumps with it as it gathered momentum on its way to the bottom of the trench. I couldn't see what would cause a lump of clay to move. "'Somebody there?' I called. My voice sounded weak, muffled by the dirt walls. I couldn't hear properly. I thought someone just ran by. The dirt was so high that I couldn't even see shadows. I peered around the corner of the trench. Of course, nobody was there. So I sat on the cool earth, eight feet below the grass, aware of a strange discomfort. A long, deep trench is something that few will ever experience anymore. I was picturing all those young, young boys in all those trenches in the First World War. I was getting a sense of how terrifying such sensory deprivation could be in a life-and-death situation. I could see how they accidentally bayoneted each other as they rounded the corners while watching their step in the mud. I could feel how rubbing both shoulders against the sides of dirt walls for weeks on end could drive a soldier out of his adolescent mind. I wanted to bring my own kids over and share this rare experience. I wanted this for them so that when they watched the grainy footage of trench warfare that was broadcast to a new generation every November 11th, it might carry a more visceral meaning in their lives. But they were in school, and I had to get the concrete footings poured immediately, so I couldn't spare the empty trench for a hands-on history lesson. Hey, time is money. The father and son finished the footing pour while I went to the street to supervise the offloading of the concrete block. The crane truck was on the sidewalk, and already traffic was backing up as they crawled around it. I'll never understand how the drivers of these rigs remain so calm in the face of the abuse they take. By the time the four skids of block was deposited on the front lawn, I was a basket case from directing traffic and smiling and apologizing for the inconvenience as people drove by, giving us the finger, calling us names. I am frazzled, I said to the driver. How do you stay so cool snarling up traffic all day? I smoke a joint, he said. Now sign here, I gotta get moving. It was around this time that Ida first showed up. My friend Gregor, the window manufacturer, called and asked me if it would be okay if Ida came by to look at the bay window we had installed in the front of the house. She says she can't tell anything from my brochure, so she wants to see the real thing. Well, that's cool, Gregor. Send her over. She's high maintenance, he warned. I can't decide if I like her or not, so just watch your step. Well, Ida was all business. After we shook hands, she pulled out a notebook and began asking me questions about the window and the installation, writing down all my answers. But after about ten minutes of this, I told her I had to get back to work. Of course, she said. Thanks for your time. Oh, I'd like to take a look at your addition. I might want an addition. She tiptoed through the dirt in her spike heels, and I introduced her to the Silvanos, 
who got out of the trench and greeted her politely. I clocked her Gucci bag and her BMW. This gave me a clue to her taste, and now I knew what kind of windows she would choose. So finally the foundation rose up from the earth. George cut the final course of blocks so that it measured exactly 20 inches above grade. Then I called Nick for the foundation inspection. Excellent job, he said. Go ahead, fill it in. We threw the dirt back down on either side of the new wall, tamped it down as we went. I jumped and I stomped and I danced all over the loose fill, so relieved that the foundation part of this job was over, and thanking God for the Silvanos. At the end of the day, I was hosing down the backfield earth to make it settle faster when Frank came across the yard wheeling a bicycle. Good job, he said, and pushed the bicycle at me. This for you. I'm supposed to ride for my heart, but I don't want to. I got pills for that. The proposed addition was just one story at ground level and attached to the back of the main house, so I figured that with enough guys, I could get the whole thing framed in a day. I hired a Portuguese kid and his crew that came highly recommended. And because it was only one day of work, I promised to pay well and to buy lunch. I just had to hope that this was enough enticement for them to all show up. The afternoon before the big day, Phil and I met the lumber truck and began humping lumber and plywood into the backyard. And then a man in a subcompact car honked his horn, got out and shouted at us to move the goddamn truck. I apologized for the inconvenience and I suggested that it was plenty of room for him to get by. It should have ended there, but the man started to lecture me on traffic bylaws, shouting yuppie babble like, What gives you the right? From behind me, I heard, You shut yourself up! And Frank came lumbering off his porch with such fury that the man retreated to his car. These boys are working hard, you little men. Drive your car away or I will kill you! The man made a big show of squeezing past the truck, gave us the finger, and then raced away. You boys, you get back to work, said Frank. I look after these cars. Well, we unloaded and listened to Frank berating the drivers for even slowing down. Go, 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 yes, yes, you have lots of room. Then you are a chicken, you are a baby. Go, go. When all the lumber was loaded into the backyard and locked up, Frank brought us two tea towels with maps of Russia on them. Wipe your faces and then keep the towels for the next time. It was going to be a long day framing, so I had called for a 7 a.m. start. The framers had all arrived together and on time, thank God. I showed them the drawings, gave brief instructions, and then we started putting down the floor joists. Three hours later, it was all down, glued and screwed, and I said, good work, who wants coffee? They all looked at each other. I'm buying, I said. They couldn't believe their luck. A boss who bought coffee and a boss who didn't yell at them. This, they impressed upon me, was unusual. When the walls were up and braced, I asked, What do you guys want for lunch? There was a discussion in Portuguese, and Luis asked, Could we have Swiss chalet? Sure, I said. They stomped on the deck, they high-fived each other and shouted, Bonus! Bonus! These poor guys had hit the mother load of working conditions for one lousy day. We sat on the new floor and we ate chicken dinners. And Clessio told me that he and his brother quit school when their dad got cancer, and it fell to the boys to pay the mortgage. He'd been framing since he was 17. Vic told me that he was dyslexic or something, 
He'd been humiliated by a grade nine teacher, so he quit school. As soon as I was out of there, he said, I finally felt like a man. After lunch, I let him all have a second cigarette before cracking the whip. Let's wrap this up in three hours, I said. I'm getting tired. I didn't tell them that I was worn out. I wanted to go home immediately and get into a bath with a bottle of Beaujolais. There was a breeze when we started on the roof, and that helped me. It was getting dangerous to be old and weary, walking across the joists, trying to keep up with these kids 35 years my junior and their frantic pace. How long had it been since I worked that fast? Time had snuck up on me. I could feel that I was not as strong, not as fast as I was when I was framing with Stan, not that long ago. I'd have to concentrate on being more careful now to avoid injury. And finally, the sun was setting. We stood on the new roof and I panted, Okay, boys, you're done. I handed them each a fistful of cash and we parted company, vowing to work together again. Yeah. The next morning, my guys were back. We all had university degrees and none of us had ever known the hardship that the Framer boys had. We had known white boy hardship, like working overtime to make the student loan payment, but... Our birthright had spared us the grind you down until you're angry about everything and you don't even know how to be happy anymore state of mind that's everywhere in the unskilled trades. We began to turn the new addition into a home. We put in the windows and the French doors, and then Phil and I went outside and put up the siding while Trevor the foam guy came back to spray the foam into the new walls. Then it was on to the drywall. I had ordered it in 4 foot by 10 foot sheets. It's heavier to put in place than the standard 4 foot by 8 foot sheets, but the longer the sheet, the fewer the seams there are to tape and cover with drywall mud. And that's what I wanted, as few seams as possible, because I've never found the grace and the economy of movement of those real full-time professional seam tapers. They're a joy to watch, standing on stilts strapped to their calves, swiping a smooth layer of mud over an ugly joint with the graceful arc of an arm. It's kind of like a heron lifting into flight. By contrast, I'm a joke to watch, resembling a rooster furtively pecking at the walls. In the end, though, my work has a professional finish, thanks to a lot of sanding. And on the final wall, of course, I ran out of sandpaper, so off to Home Depot again. Coming out of the parking lot with my contractor pack of sandpaper, I stopped at the stop sign, and I was about to turn onto the street when there was an alarming bang on my passenger door. I couldn't see anything, so I stopped the truck and I went around to the passenger door. I had to look twice. Sitting on the pavement was a real, live, 100% clown, complete with red nose, makeup, baggy polka dot pants. And beside him was a unicycle. He had a backpack, and I could see oversized clown shoes sticking out of the top. He got to his feet, glaring at me. You all right? I asked. The clown mounted his unicycle, adjusted his fuzzy orange wig, and shouted, Fuck you, you fucking goof. And then he unicycled away down the street. <sighs> when I got back, everybody laughed at the surreal absurdity, but we discovered that none of us trusted clowns. They creeped us out. And being so close to finishing this project, an encounter with a clown was akin to having a black cat cross our path. Nobody actually believes in that stuff, but... 
When you work with electricity and water and power tools, disasters can happen and sometimes you find yourself considering omens. Right on cue, Ida called. Are George and his family trustworthy? You say they do good work and that's one thing, but can I trust them in my home? In my calmest voice, I said, yes. Okay, great. Now I'm going to do the basement apartment so they can have the work, but I want you to put a lock on the main floor to the bathroom. I told Jimmy that I was nervous. Call her back, he said. Call her back and say, fuck you, you fucking goof. Yeah, but it's about ten weeks' work. Oh, okay, call her back and tell her you'll be right over to do anything she asks. Just don't blow this gig, okay? It was Jimmy's last day. He was finishing the tile backsplash, and then it would be just Phil and me left to paint the place. We helped Jimmy load his tiling gear into his Porsche the last one luxury item he managed to keep from his high-rolling days in the entertainment business. There's no group celebration at the end of a full house renovation because the workers dwindle away one by one as they finish their part of the project. Those left behind get impatient to be done and move on to the next. This time, before we left for good, Phil and I went next door to say goodbye to Frank. He gave us each a packet of Kleenex and a bottle of sparkling water. Don't forget me, boys. 